the Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm Rick Lee. As usual, I'm joined by the other hosts of the podcast, Jason Reed and Lee Johnson. And today we are talking about Too Soon? (laughs) But before we get into the meat of that, we're going to take some drink orders and find out what y'all are ranting or raving about. So, Lee, let me start with you. What are you drinking and are you ranting or raving? I'm just going to have a Fresquila today. As I've mentioned before, this is one of my favorite summer drinks, Fresca and Tequila. And I am raving today. And I'm raving about this book I just recently read called Plunder, Private Equity's Plan to Pillage America by Brendan Ballou. This is a really great book, and I was a little bit worried about it. I thought it was going to be maybe too heavy on the economics or above my head on the economics, but it's really readable, even if you're not very familiar with economic theory. Brendan Ballou basically explains how private equity has been operative in, I mean, honestly, as it says in his title, pillaging America's wealth, or at least most of America's wealth. But in particular, what really surprised me about this book is his very clear explanations of the government's complicity in programs of private mm. equity. So I highly recommend this to everybody. Again, it's called Plunder. It's by Brendan Ballou. That's B-A-L-L-O-U. And we'll put a link to it in our show notes. Jason, what are you drinking and are you ranting or raving? I'm just going to have a strawberry lemonade. Ooh, nice. I'm enjoying that drink recently. And I'm going to rave about drive-in theaters. Here in Maine, we have a few of them. And especially since the pandemic started, I've been going to them more and more. In fact, the best year for it was 2020 when there were no new movies coming out. So they were just showing things like Raiders of the Lost Ark and Jurassic Park at the drive-in. But they are like a weird slice of time preserved. Even the prices in the snack bar. Plus, it's just great. You can sit. You're not bothered by anyone else. You can talk to the person with you and make your own like sarcastic comments about the not very good Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny and not <laughs> worry about who you're disturbing because you're just there in your own little car. So... The drive-in theater is definitely a worthwhile experience, especially in our pandemic times. So, Rick, what are you having? What are you ranting or raving about? I'm going to have a Kolsch, um, and I'll have a Solemn Oath local brewery. They do a great Kolsch called Lü, which is L-U with an umlaut. (laughs) And I also am raving this week. And as you'll see, there's a hidden rant in there. Of course. I'm raving about... (laughs) A recent episode of This American Life on Florida. This episode was really excellent. They talked to a number of people who have moved into Florida for what they consider to be healthcare freedom. That is the freedom to take ivermectin if you want to (laughs) um, and other such nonsense like that. They really sat and talked with a number of people on different issues and from different sides. There was a wonderful conversation about a university student and her feeling that her own major, which had to do with race studies, was under threat. It was just really an incredibly well done episode. So, Lee, is it too soon to talk about what we're talking about today? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I hope not. I want to go ahead and apologize to our listeners for the curious title of this episode. I wasn't really sure what to call it. I think we're ultimately really going to be talking about propriety, but I'm not sure. So when it comes to propriety, there are a lot of gray areas, right? Because propriety demands that we conform to conventional rules of speech or behavior And conventional rules are often more convention than they are rules. So propriety requires that we develop our capacities of judgment and sagacity and interpersonal awareness, things like prudence and discretion, which are quite arguably different than our capacities to apply a rule or logically reason from premise to conclusion. 
Now, the reason we call this episode too soon has to do with comics. So comics, who are perhaps the least interested in propriety (laughs) among us, they call this timing. And they spend years perfecting their optimal joke deliveries. And when comics timing fails, or when they can't read the room, as they say, they bomb. Sometimes that's a consequence of a deficit in their delivery. So their rhythm, cadence, tempo, pausing, whatever. But sometimes the joke itself fails. So I have an example of this. In the months immediately following 9-11, most comics who joked about the attacks of that day were met with gasps and groans from their audience. Too soon, the audience would heckle with the bad taste of bad taste in their mouths. Too soon. So today we're going to try to unpack what too soon means. How do we determine how soon is too soon? And whether or not there are, in fact, rules of propriety. All right, guys. So again, I just had a really hard time sort of figuring out what the actual topic of this episode was going to be. Let's just start with this idea of good timing. So I'd like to talk about what good timing is and how maybe it does demonstrate the merits of prudence or discretion as capacities of judgment. But I think before we do that, we first have to define what we mean by prudence or discretion. Well, I could start with the kind of example that comes from ancient Greek thought. If you imagine that you're in a chariot race, so you develop all these skills, you train to be a charioteer, a chariot driver, (laughs) and there might be rules for that. But let's say the track you're on has a certain rut at a specific moment. If you could capture that moment and bam, get your chariot in just the right way, you can get an advantage on the other chariot racers. And so there is a kind of timing there that, Mm -hmm. sure, it requires a whole lot of knowledge and training and one might even say a kind of practical know-how. But there's a moment in which you see that the time is right for this. The time is right to do this. Or I guess then the opposite would be the recognition that the time is not right to do this. Yeah, I guess I'm wondering if we're talking about two different senses of timing and talking about the comedy example, right? There's comic timing. Sometimes you have to wait like a beat for a punchline. And if you wait two beats, it goes too long. And if you rush it doesn't give people enough time to take it in and then not to rush ahead to this punchline you know i think we're we're getting there is the punchline of you know comedy equals tragedy plus time right that people might one day be ready for 9-11 jokes but they definitely weren't ready on september 12th for 9-11 jokes and i think those are two different senses of timing right they're both integral to comedy But one of them is more of like almost like a cognitive thing. You need people to have enough time to take in what you just said and set themselves up for the twist or the unexpected ending of the story that makes the joke. And the other one is, is, you know, people need time to process things. On that note, I was thinking about this the other day, and I was thinking about how we have two ways of talking about badly placed comedy. One is too soon, and the other is read the room, Mm -hmm. which is a different kind of prudence. It's less temporal. I don't want to be like Kantian about it. It's like less temporal, more spatial, because the space Mm -hmm. is not really space. It's more about the situation, right? Like there's a joke that might work in the right room Mm -hmm. with the right people around, but wouldn't work in other situations. You know, like, you wouldn't make a joke about the Titan sub collapsing with the parent of one of the kids in the room. But for other people, it was fair game. It was billionaires. Who cares? So <laughs> and so there is a sense of, like, the spatialization and the social situation of prudence. And I think, for me, I guess prudence, a lot of it involves a sense of your read on the situation. Like, how well do you incorporate the situation to what you're thinking? Yeah, and I think that distinction you made also brings in this notion of discretion, One of the things that you have to determine is a kind of discrete temporalization in the first sense that you were talking about, right? Like how many beats is needed for a audience, for example, to process this 
setup before I can deliver the punchline in the most effective way. And the other sense is a kind of social discretion, right? Like what's going on in the room? Who's here? It's in this way, I think very much like Aristotle's notion of phronesis, you know, what's the right amount at the right time in the right company, et cetera, that makes the joke work, makes it such that somebody won't say, Ugh, you know, too soon. (laughs) By the way, can I also tell you one of my favorite jokes? Do you know what the best quality of the funniest comedian is? Good timing. (laughs) 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 It's funny because it's true. <laughs> but if I can get a grip on myself, this is the moment in which I think prudence and discretion become an interesting realm because, as you pointed out in your introduction, Lee, there are, let's say, laws, for example, and you either follow the laws or you don't, and there's not much really thinking about it. You know that you violated a law and you know that you're following a law. But our whole life is not law-governed situations. There's not always a rule to apply. Right. But also, even if there were, don't we need a little bit of judgment to know that this is the situation in which rule one applies rather than rule eight? Right. And so there is a lot of messiness to our human life that requires a certain kind of ability to read the room and read the time to know that I shouldn't do this now and I could do this now. And so I think prudence is really crucial, not just for us to live a moral or ethical life, but also it has this important social function. It allows us to live a life together in a way that as few people are harmed as possible. And so the question is, when is it appropriate then to harm someone? For example, should I tell 9-11 jokes? I know it might hurt some people, but it's important to hurt them to, I don't know, get them out of complacency or make them rethink this in a different way and so on. And if I could say something about 9-11 jokes, if I'm not mistaken, it was at a roast where Gilbert Gottfried very soon after 9-11, started making 9-11 jokes, and he was bombing. And in order to get out of bombing, he told the aristocrats joke. Yeah, yeah, that's true. (laughs) He did. So for listeners, the aristocrats is sort of notoriously one of the filthiest jokes in comedy. There are infinite variations of it, but the idea of the joke is that it just keeps getting more offensive and more offensive and more offensive. And yeah, the story that Rick is telling is true. It was just a few days, really, I think, after 9-11, and Gilbert Gottfried told this 9-11 joke. I actually remember the joke. It was, he said he was taking a flight from Los Angeles to Boston, but the pilot came over the air and said, but we have to make a stop at the World Trade Center first. And the audience just groaned. And someone did shout out too soon Mm. in the audience. And so he immediately launches into the aristocrats, which again, absolutely filthy joke. There's a documentary on this. Look it up. But the aristocrats is an absolutely filthy joke. It just keeps kind of doubling down and doubling down and doubling down on its offensiveness. And he went all in on the aristocrats (laughs) joke. And four minutes later had everybody just in stitches. And I remember him saying afterwards, he's like, no one has ever lost a room quicker than I did Mm. that night. And no one's ever regained a room quicker than I did. And again, this is about prudence, discretion, timing. What's interesting there is that he had this moment of indiscretion and then he needed this prudential insight in order to then get the room back again. And so that's a really interesting example. Yeah. And it kind of brings me to a question that I have, which is that obviously good comics, you know, comics with good timing, with prudence and discretion, skilled comics are given significantly more latitude than bad comics. Right. Mm -hmm. And that would suggest that a well executed delivery might trump the perceived tastelessness of the content Mm -hmm. of the joke. And yet, 
most times I don't think it does. Mm. You know, like, how is it that good comics get away with too soon jokes? I mean, here's an example. So Gilbert Godfrey just pivoted, right? It was a good pivot. (laughs) But how do good comics get away with too soon jokes? And when they don't, why don't they? Or sometimes, you know, I think about this in terms of another famous incident in presidential comedy is Stephen Colbert's White House Correspondent Dinner appearance from years ago, in which he really went into the complicity of the media in their portrayal of politicians, right? Made a joke about how you just run the press releases through a spell check and get back to your novel about the intrepid reporter. (laughs) And he says, you know, fiction. (laughs) And he was, in some sense, bombing in that room. There were only a few people who were laughing but that clip then went viral and made his career as i think this is before just when he just started his show mm-hmm. and the room or the moment is only one standard of evaluation sometimes you have to read the room and sometimes you have to know when you're gonna pitch to a different audience than the room mm. i think about this sometimes actually very practically in teaching sometimes i think you need to read the room and be like where people are and sometimes students aren't there they're kind of everyone's groggy you just just go with it as if you're talking to a better prepared class <laughs> because sometimes sometimes you can do that and it can change the room. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Sometimes yeah. you can change yeah, the room. Yeah. The room isn't a fixed given. Yeah, no, I think the Gilbert Gottfried example is a really good example of that. Yeah, but I think the Colbert example, I mean, I think that is one of the most courageous acts of comedy I have ever seen. And if I remember it correctly, he was also intensely critical of George W. Bush, who was sitting right Mm -hmm. next to him. So, I I mean, Mm -hmm. I think it was incredibly courageous, but Colbert made a decision, a prudential decision, that the room in which he was in at that moment was not the room to which he was delivering this comedy, that he was speaking to a different room. And I think you can do that because he knows that this is nationally televised and there will be a larger audience, and that's who he was speaking to. But my God, the courage to bomb live in that room where he was... And yet all the while be convinced that he's not bombing to the room he's actually playing to was one of the most impressive things I've ever seen. I agree. And I also think related to the comic sense of timing that we were talking about earlier, you can tell a joke or tell a story or whatever, and the timing of it is protracted later, like much later, you know, in the annals of history, (laughs) this will be a good joke, but right now it's not. I mean, I'm just thinking, you know, earlier Jason mentioned the old adage that comedy equals tragedy plus time. And, you know, it's been 2000 years since Sophocles wrote Oedipus Rex, but there's currently a musical theater comedy based on that tragedy. And although it's possible that someone might find this in bad taste, I doubt anyone would say too soon. (laughs) (laughs) So like there's a longer protracted sense of timing that we can think about as well. The adage comedy is tragedy plus time is interesting because it really does show that comedy is one way, to use a phrase Jason used earlier, of working through an experience that a person or a group of people have had. Comedians tend to insist it's important that we laugh even in the face of tragedy while other people feel like I'm not in a place where I can yet laugh at this. And so it really is a touchy business of figuring out, is it too soon? Is it too late? But then if it's too, too, too late, and that's a really tricky business. But I have a number of friends who the way in which we express concern and love for one another is by making jokes and being comedic especially in the face of tragedy. Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email a audio clip to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. 
If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. All right, so here's the question of the day. Are there some topics that can never be joked about? Or with regard to certain joke content, is any time still going to be too soon? And just FYI, I think those are two different questions. The question of whether or not there's topics that you can never joke about. And the second question, which is that there are certain topics that will always be too, let's say, like tragically raw to joke about. Well, among comedians, one of the notorious subjects that perhaps one should not joke about is rape. Right. But there are a number, and particularly feminist comedians, who fly right into the teeth of that. But, I mean, that's one topic that I think a lot of people agree. It's just not funny. There's no joke to be had there. But it's such a common joke, right? I mean, every single going to prison joke is a rape joke. Yeah. It's also a homophobic rape joke. Yeah. Okay, so rape is off the list as something that is not joked about. (laughs) Like, is there anything that can't be joked about? The Shoah? I mean, I feel like I've heard many Holocaust jokes, both from Jewish comedians and, unfortunately, non-Jewish comedians. I don't think that any of us can admit that there aren't Holocaust jokes. There are terrorism jokes. There are rape jokes. There are domestic violence jokes. Like, is there anything that... Maybe I'm asking the question the wrong way. I mean, obviously, anything can be joked about. It could be joked about, like, in bad taste. But is there anything that is in such bad taste that we would universally reject it as a joke? So is your question here... Certainly, I could tell a racist joke among racists, and they will find it funny. But is there something that I cannot joke about among anyone at all because no one at all would find this funny? Maybe that's my question. But I think that you can tell a racist joke in mixed company. So racist, non-racist, mixed company, and it will be funny. We could probably find examples, definitely could find examples of people telling rape jokes, people telling Holocaust jokes, people telling terrorism jokes, 9-11 jokes in mixed company by people who we would presume might find that offensive and wouldn't find that offensive. And the room finds it funny. Maybe I should ask it this way. Are there some topics that ought not be joked about? Mm. Well, I think the catch there is the idea of a universal prohibition. There are definitely things that I will not joke about. And as a man, I would put rape on that list. As a goy, I would put the Holocaust on that (laughs) list. As a white person, I would put slavery on that list but i can think of a pretty funny key and peel sketch about slavery like Mm -hmm. to me the prudence is much more about the room and about who and where and when than it is about a universal right because i think any universal rule we're going to find deviations yeah we're going to find deviations that work And we're going to find deviations that don't work, hence the whole prudence issue. Yeah, deviations that seem to beg for a rule. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) Well, uh, let's get away from the content of jokes for a second and get back to the too soon thing. And here I'd like to get out of the narrow field of comedy and venture into other situations in which we might say too soon. So I'm going to give you a few examples. I think each of these are matters of propriety or discretion or judgment. But for example, when is too soon to date or to fall in love after being widowed or after a breakup or after a divorce? When is too soon to bring up an embarrassing event among friends Mm. where the person who was embarrassed is among those friends or to enter into the political arena? When is too soon to say something like mission accomplished? This is what George W. Bush said, or democracy is safe now, which is what happened after January 6th, or it's safe to return to normal, which is what we said many times after COVID. And we keep saying, yeah, and the response to all of these was too soon. Right. So what do we mean when we say too soon in a non-comic sense? But isn't this the trickiness of prudence? If there's no rule, Mm. then isn't it going to be difficult to judge what exactly it is we mean in each of these instances, because it takes a kind of, you're in the moment, you're understanding a variety of contingent factors, and you have the ability to see, I should or I shouldn't, 
or I could or I couldn't. Right. Yeah, but when I say too soon, aren't I making a judgment that your judgment is bad? Bad, yeah. There's also an idea about time itself and what happens in time. I mean, take the relationship one. Too soon to start dating after a breakup and so on. There is an idea that if you spend some time alone... You know, it'd be difficult, but eventually you'll figure out some way to not be horrified by being alone by yourself and maybe come into some understanding of who you are. And there are people who are accused of just going from relationship to relationship and never really addressing who they are as a person. So there, there is an idea about something that happens over time. Of course, it might not happen. Yeah. Right. That's the other thing about these too soon things is that sometimes there might not be an actual coming to terms with something or even in the case of political events, I think it really depends on how the actual thing that happened was dealt with. I remember this happened a few years ago. There was a rumor, or not a rumor, but there was a story that HBO was going to develop a series about what would happen in a U.S. where the South won the Civil War. And this has been done. There's been a couple versions of this done in literature. Underground Airlines, I can't remember. I'll put this in the link as a novel about this. And I remember uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote a whole piece about how the situation of Nazi Germany and the Confederacy in the U.S. were very different. Whereas in Germany, you have a whole attempt to work through. You're not allowed to fly a Nazi flag and so on. And so to do a fictionalized version, which has been done, The Man in the High Castle, of an access powers winning World War II is very different than doing a story in a country where people are still showing up, this is after like Charlottesburg, etc., at rallies with Confederate flags. It's a very different engagement with the past. Part of the whole like too soon thing is really a question about not just the passage of time, but what happens in that passage of time, yeah. right? It's true of the relationship thing. It's true of the political thing. Have you actually wrestled with that thing to make it possible you're in a different position with it now? The argument's been made that the U.S. is not in a different position with the Confederacy. People still have weddings at yeah. plantations. Yeah. You know, no one has a wedding at Auschwitz, at least as far as I know. I really hope they don't. Although people do take selfies. Yes. Yeah. I'm just spitballing here. But the first two examples that I gave you, so too soon to date after being widowed or after a breakup – and too soon to bring up an embarrassing event among friends. I think both of those are matters of what I would call prudence. The political examples that I gave you, so George W. Bush announcing mission accomplished or everyone saying it's safe to return to work in the midst of COVID, I think those are matters of discretion. Mm -hmm. And I guess I think maybe the latter, you know, it does have more to do with the truth than the former does. I think the former is really about social conventions. Mm -hmm. But what they share is this idea that I have to really be attuned to the specifics of the context. What if I was widowed, but my spouse had a long bout with a terminal disease and they had told me, you know, I hope you find someone after me, it would mm -hmm. make me happy and so on, versus my spouse dies in a car accident and the next day I'm affianced to a new spouse. Mm -hmm. The specifics really matter. And at the same time, those specifics can often overrush or overtake your capacity for judgment. And so like the mission accomplished thing, it seems as if events overtook the capacity to judge that, in fact, the mission hadn't been accomplished mm -hmm. or that it's not safe to go back to normal during COVID or, in fact, that democracy has not been safeguarded after January 6th. All of these are a way in which the time that should have been taken would have been also a distance so that one could cut through various circumstances that seem to be relevant to now see the actual circumstances that are relevant. And so in a way, the discretion, as you put it, Lee, is too soon because it's unable at that instant to see all of the relevant factors for the judgment to be made prudently. Yeah, I mean, I, this is not the hill I want to die on, but like, mm -hmm. let me just say that to a certain extent, the first two examples, so again, the person who dates after being widowed or the person who tells the embarrassing joke among friends, which I'm calling matters of prudence, 
those are captured effectively in what Aristotle called phronesis, practical wisdom. So it is about being able to judge what's the right amount at the right time among the right people, etc. And I don't think that that's necessarily the same thing as discretion when we say it's safe to go back to work at a certain point mm-hmm. during COVID. And so the difference for me between prudence and discretion is that if somebody says a week after being widowed, I think it's time for me to date again. I might say that doesn't seem like a good idea. (laughs) Like that seems ill-advised. But if somebody says to me in the height of the Delta COVID pandemic, it's safe to go back to work. I'm inclined to say that is a lie. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not just like that doesn't seem prudent. Your capacity for discreetly judging the facts is wrong. There, though, what's interesting is all of those examples, the political ones, the ones that you say are examples of bad discretion, they are also rhetorical moments in which the person saying mission accomplished is not really interested in whether or not the mission has been accomplished, but is more interested in appearing on an aircraft carrier with a banner behind showing a certain kind of strength in order to be reelected and so on. Mm -hmm. And similarly, with it's safe to return. It's not just the truth content of, well, is it safe to return? But there's a force intended behind these that doesn't belong to the person saying, well, I know my spouse just died yesterday, but I'm going to start dating today. That is not a rhetorical move, I don't think. And so these are really different examples, but interesting examples. Yeah. And it inclines me to say things like George W. Bush standing in front of a flag with a sign that says mission accomplished is more like a bad joke than it is like Mm -hmm. something distasteful. Yeah. And I think the first set of examples, the ones that involve prudence, like the dating or whatever, it's really about we ascribe a rule because we don't really know the facts of the situation, yeah. right? I mean, we tend to believe that someone just coming out of a relationship is not ready, hasn't properly dealt with what they've gone through, what they've lost, and so on. We could be wrong. I mean, there are instances where what looked like a rebound relationship turns out to be the best possible thing for mm-hmm. them. Maybe they did meet the best possible person for them, you know, leaving the funeral. <laughs> I mean, it's in bad taste, but it it could happen. Too soon, too soon. (laughs) But in the second case, we know, and we know it's wrong. In the case of the mission accomplished, it's over. We have the actual information, and it's wrong. So, I mean, I think part of the prudence in some situations around timing has to do with the fundamentally unknowable nature of the situation and the idea that the person involved is probably in no position Mm. to evaluate the situation. Mm -hmm. So we impose this kind of rule. We say, oh, wait a certain amount of time. And we do that because we're really dealing with a situation that's kind of unknowable. Yeah. Because the person involved might given all their grief and the loss they're dealing with, might think, oh my God, I just met my real soulmate. Now, that dead loser wasn't the one. (laughs) But they're probably wrong. But this is the complexity involved in judgment, which is the reason why a number of people want to eliminate it as much as possible so that we don't exercise our judgment in all sorts of aspects of human life and human interaction because the situation is unknowable and it's hard to figure out whether your judgment was made at the right time, in the right way, at the right place, with the right people, because of this, as you put it, Jason, fundamental unknowability. But if it turns out that our lives are marked by just this radically contingent set of experiences, then we need judgment. I mean, judgment is our only way of surviving. And so as messy as it is, I don't think we can get rid of it. But I do see the reason why people are enticed by a kind of proceduralism, either politically or socially or ethically, because if I could just follow procedures, then I don't need judgment. Yeah, but isn't every judgment the putative imposition of a rule? Mm. I mean, see Kant's third critique. There's no like judgment that is not at least implicitly seeking some kind of procedural resolution. But as Kant will say in the critique of the power of judging, i.e. the third critique, 
that kind of judgment is a judgment that now sets the rule, yeah. but it itself is not emerging from any set of rules. Right. It's not following a rule. Exactly. It's not applying right. a rule. Yeah. It is establishing a rule. You know, so when Picasso paints a Cubist painting that no one has ever seen that kind of thing before, now all of a sudden that judgment establishes a new kind of rule. Do you want more hotel bar sessions in your life? Is one episode a week not enough? Or do you just need something to do while avoiding eye contact with strangers on the bus? Well, you're in luck. You can follow us on Twitter at Hotel Bar Sessions. There, you can also find the Twitter handles of each individual host. Follow your favorite or collect them all. Remember, parasocial is the new antisocial. So it might be too soon to uh, (laughs) shift this conversation this way. But as I said earlier, Read the Room is another way of formulating some of these same issues. And one of the things I think is interesting about that is, as we sort of talked about when we talked about Colbert, we live now in a society where increasingly we're not in discrete rooms. Mm. One of the things that happens a lot, especially we're talking about the online world of social media, is people make a joke or a comment that really works well with a particular group of people, but they're making it to all sorts of other people at the same time. One example is recently there's been stories of off the coast of the Mediterranean, orcas have been attacking yachts. Right. And people, especially people in my circles, have made all kinds of jokes and memes about revolutionary orcas (laughs) and so on. And then people who are maybe, I think, humorless, You know, someone wrote for The Atlantic, the magazine, not the ocean, a piece about... A piece about like how, you know, like this isn't funny, you know, these animals are in distress, so on and so forth. And I think that there is just like that joke worked in a particular room. Yeah. You know, where people make lots of jokes about the revolution, but someone else who maybe is very serious about the well being of our cetacean no, it's Orca cetaceans, yeah, porpoises are cetaceans. Uh, our cetacean friends, it might not seem funny. And so yeah. I feel like we live in a situation where no matter where we read the room, we're always going to be in a different room. I completely agree with you, Jason. And I think that one of the things that we really do need to talk about, and I think this really gets at the read the room thing, is that errors in taste or propriety or discretion or judgment or prudence or however we want to frame them are often met with severe moral approbation, more approbation than garden variety vices. And not to get too technical here, but if the moral failure of too soon or an inability to read the room is a failure to appropriately judge the vicissitudes of culturally specific human taste as it changes in time. Like, can you blame anybody for, like, not erring once in a while in this way? Jason's point makes your question there, Lee, a little bit more complicated because I think of a social media context or a context in which almost anything can immediately become a social media issue in which the room that I may have said my thing, like red orcas, and it's clear that the orcas are not Trotskyites, <laughs> but because they're much more revolutionary and they're not working for a contradiction to overthrow the status quo like the dolphins are. fucking dolphins. But that I could tell that to a bunch of lefties, progressives, communists, what have you. And then it now is taken to a different room. That's something that I can't necessarily know ahead of time. And you're rightly in a different room. All of a sudden, then the axe comes down on me as if I had advocated the eating of children. Yeah. We've talked about this in earlier seasons, but there was this case of this woman, Justine Sacco, I think, who was on a flight to South Africa. Well, she was tweeting, you know, as she was taking this flight. And on the last leg of her flight, she tweets out, going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding. I'm white. And then gets on the plane. Mm. And then in the 12 hours that she's on that flight, Twitter eviscerates her. I mean, that tweet goes viral and her life is over. 
when she gets off of that flight. And okay, A, she did not read the room, right? B, too soon. And C, an incredible lack of discretion, prudence, judgment, taste, everything else. Mm -hmm. But you're right. Social media changes things, right? Like we can't put things on social media as if we're amongst friends. Right. Right. And this goes back to a point that I think Jason raised way at the beginning of our conversation. I wouldn't make a joke about the implosion of the submarine Titan to a widow or a mother of one of the people who died in that. But with the larger context of social media, I don't know whether someone who is the mother or spouse or father or sister or whatever of what I'm joking about is in the room. So I don't know how then to proceed. And I think this is what a number of comedians are complaining about these days. Many comedians think it's their job to push the boundaries of taste, to push the boundaries of prudence and discretion, just at the very least so we know that there are limits or there are limits that we didn't know were imposing that we are in fact imposing. And they're complaining that with the new kind of I think many of them chalk it up to sensitivity. They can no longer do the kind of comedy they want to do, and they're censoring themselves in advance. I like that you said that, Rick. It is comics' jobs to push the boundaries of sensitivity, I guess is one way to say it, but prudence and propriety. But I also think, you know, you got to take your licks when you step over the line. So I have no problem with daring comics I have a problem with whiny comics right. who are like, man, like people are trying to cancel me, you know? And it's like, okay, well, you don't get to be evil Knievel and not get a few broken bones. Like that just is part of the job. But this reminds me of something that Jason said in a previous episode. I don't remember which one it was, but where we were talking about this social convention of not speaking ill of the dead. And Jason was complaining that it sanctifies everybody and it makes it such that everybody who dies immediately becomes, you know, like you can't say anything about them. And Jason, I do remember this part, said I have got tracks lined up for when certain people die and I will dance on their graves. So I am 100% sure that when Henry Kissinger dies that Jason is going to tweet something awful about Henry Kissinger. And I can only assume that there has got to be some member of Henry Kissinger's family that is on Twitter. So yeah, you're right. The room is hard to read on social media because the room is everybody. Does that mean that we all have to read the room in the same way? I don't think so, really. Mm -hmm. Your point, Lee, is well taken, but really difficult. Namely that Dave Chappelle, you know, I'm not saying he doesn't have the right to say whatever kind of transphobic bullshit he wants to say. But as I've said many times, he doesn't have a right to my attention and he doesn't have a right to my $50 for a ticket. And if he wants to call that being canceled, whatever, you're not being canceled. I just prefer not to support you anymore. And so as you say, Evil Knievel, you missed the Snake Canyon jump. And so now you got a broken leg. Sorry, but you know. Those are the lakes. (laughs) Exactly. But then the next step is, does that have a chilling effect on every comedian. Mm. And I have to say, like, I am sick and tired of Bill Maher's constant whininess about exactly this issue. Like, oh, the kids on college, they're so sensitive and they can't take a joke anymore and blah, blah. Like, I'm sick of him. He's lost my attention and my $50 for a ticket for one of his shows. Mm. But back to Jason and dancing on people's graves. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think part of the issue is that Social media creates this false sense of immediacy as if you did make the joke in front of the widow. Mm. And in some sense, you really haven't. I mean, it's this weird privatization of the public where it looks to everyone as if it's directly to them. So it seems very private. And, you know, we hold these little phones around and we read them on the toilet. So it seems like a very private moment. But when we're talking about these people like Kissinger, like Nixon, whoever, these are public figures. We're talking about their role in deciding the fates of millions of people. If that isn't up for criticism discussion, I don't know what 
is. Mm-hmm. I, maybe there are, I would say there are some jokes that should never go outside the room that they emerge in. Like one example I can think of years ago, I used to work at an animal shelter. Yeah. And people in animal shelters deal with tragedy a lot. And people in animal shelters care a lot about animals, but especially people I worked with had some pretty dark jokes to deal with the tragedy and their yeah. concern. Yeah. I would never have repeated those jokes outside of that crowd because they would sound terrible, especially coming from someone working in an animal shelter. But they were the jokes people needed to get through the day. Yeah. And I think there was definitely an understanding that those jokes work only in the room of people who understand what you went through. Yeah. And I feel like there are other situations like that. There are some jokes that just work for people who work in a situation, but maybe they don't live beyond the situation. Yeah, I mean, it's occurring to me now that just in our previous episode about tenure that I repeated the very old academic joke about, you know, the only way that you can lose tenure is to be caught with a dead woman or a live boy, which is both a, which is it's, it's such a bad taste, right? It's, it's both a right. pedophilia joke and a, like, whatever it's called when you have sex with dead people joke, you know, like or a murder right. joke. You know, um, yeah, and I think that in the context of academia, that is funny. But, you know, if I had to, like, chart it out as a sentence, the content of it is awful. Right. Mm -hmm. This is a really interesting aspect of Freud's theory about jokes, as he has it in Jokes in the Relation to the Unconscious. He talks about what he calls a joke envelope. So one of the exercises he performs is take the content of a joke and restate that in a way that is no longer a joke. Then you can begin to see how the joke functions. But what's important for him is that a joke has this envelope that allows the content to be delivered before anyone's censorship is aware of, oh my God, what you Mm-hmm. just said is offensive. So I already got it. I'm maybe already laughing at it. And then I'm like, oh, oh, she just made a pedophilic, homophobic, <laughs> yeah. murder, yeah. rapey joke. And yet- Okay, it's getting worse as you go. <laughs> <laughs> but sorry, listeners. But that's, according to Freud, and I think he's onto something here, that's one of the mechanisms by which jokes work, is they deliver things in this envelope so that I'm not sure- immediately what the content is and then Mm -hmm. later and here's another you know unpacking later when i unpack it and that could be a second later or a day later it doesn't matter then i'm now looking at the content and judging it and i think that gets back to the relationship between comedy and tragedy i mean comedy is also cathartic in the aristotelian sense But it is the case that often it takes time for people who have experienced tragedy to be able to cathect it, you know? I mean, like, so that's where the too soon comes back in. Yeah. I like this idea of the envelope thing because I was thinking about tenure. A common joke I might make, like if I'm walking to class and I run into one of my colleagues and maybe I feel like I'm not really ready that day and I'll say like, oh my God, I'm so not prepared for this class. And then I'll shrug my shoulders and say, what are they going to do? I got tenure, right? (laughs) You know, and that joke is funny because, you know, like my friend knows that I'm a dedicated teacher. We work with the same students and so on. He knows that I'm not shrugging it off as much as it sounds. But if you take a joke out of the envelope Uh of like our shared understanding of our commitment and concern and post it up on social media, you know, it suddenly sounds like something entirely different. Different. Yeah. yeah. And that's an instance in which it's not about timing. It's actually about prudence. It's about reading the room. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which to go back to where we started with this segment, that's becoming increasingly difficult, if not impossible. Jason used the term humorless before to refer to someone. I think we've all had the experience where you make a joke And someone will say, well, I don't think that's funny because it's anti-Orca. It's anti-Orca. It's anti, yeah, it's anti-Cetacean. It's anti-Cetacean. Um, and on the one hand, I want to say, okay, it was a fucking joke. But <laughs> but on the other hand, I also want to say that it is a joke might be doing something important. And that for me to simply not say something because it's offensive might mean that we never 
come to uncover the norms and values that govern our society that themselves might be questionable. Oh, and there's the rub. (laughs) (laughs) Rub it, Lee. (laughs) Too soon. Well, guys, this has been a really fascinating conversation, and I really want to thank you both for helping me work out whatever it was that I thought this episode was going to be about. You know, I literally sent these guys an outline that was titled Too Soon and never even said what the topic was. But I think that we've really gotten through a lot of things here about the nature of social relationships and our abilities to make prudent discretionary judgments with regard not only to the interpersonal dynamics, but larger historical and immediately temporal contexts of our judgment. So I really appreciate both of your helping me out with this. Yeah. And on the topic of too soon is never too soon to donate to help keep this show going. Nice, that is always nice. timely. <laughs> so you can find us at patreon.com slash hotel bar sessions. And we have multiple different levels with which to support us putting out these shows in a timely fashion. And you know, stay tuned because it is true uh, there'll be a special When Kissinger Dies dance party. Uh, not for Patreon subscribers only. It'll be an exclusive. And who knows when that comes? Because he's already, what, 100? So who knows when that'll come? It has to be soon. Yeah, and I just want to note that next episode will be our last episode of Season 7. So as usual, we're going to do something. Well, I, I don't know how as usual it is. But like for the last three seasons, we've been dedicating the last episode of the season to a relatively familiar excerpt from philosophy that maybe a lot of people know about but don't know about in detail that we just wanted to work through to kind of help everybody with their cocktail party conversations. And next week, we're going to be talking about the very famous dialectic of lordship and bondage from Hegel's phenomenology, otherwise known as the master-slave dialectic. So I'm really excited about that. So it may seem too soon for you, but it's too late for the bartender. They've issued last call, so we have to get out of here. (laughs) Oh, yeah. All right, I will catch you guys next time.